Hey everybody, this is Pastor Todd, and you're listening to the Grace Community Church Sermon Podcast. I've been following Jesus since I was 11 years of age, and um, I've been worshiping Him and loving to be in worship with His people for all of my life, and I am still astonished every time I get to come into His presence with singing, these days with humming, and I just want to continue to remind you of the important role worshiping Jesus plays in your life, and I want to just encourage you never, never, never to forsake it. It's just, for me, the center of my experience with Jesus. Let me just say thank you to Nina for my Christmas tree that has lights. How awesome is that? We actually um, spend time in our staff meetings talking about the prop that Pastor Todd will get to have on his pulpit. We um, change it every time I come to a new sermon series. And I am aware that it's a cause of some consternation and stress to our uh, team who have to figure out what to get. But that one seems just about perfect to me. So thank you, Nina. I appreciate you. As I said off the top, if you came in after we started, welcome to church. My name is Todd Lee, pastor here. You find yourself in the season of Advent, and uh, we begin a new series in Advent this week called The Sun. I'm going to uh, examine some of the names of Jesus as outlined in the Advent story for you over the coming four weeks. And particularly, I hope to point out to you some of the ways in which who Jesus is can and should inform everything about your life. It may be interesting to some of us, the theological significance of the names of Christ, but uh, I know that for every single one of us, as we tease out the implications of who Jesus is, um, there's room for it to absolutely transform our lives. So that's what I'm hoping to do. I'm hoping to introduce you to Jesus as he is introduced to us in the Advent story with the hope that who Jesus is and what that means absolutely changes your life this Christmas, especially in these difficult times. Who is Jesus? I felt since I was maybe 17, I came to faith at 11 years of age, kind of had a radical salvation moment. But it was around 17 when I began to kind of develop some strong compulsion around the mission of Jesus and what it might look like for my peers and what its implications might be. And I began working out in my life in and around 17 years of age, the implications of who Jesus was. I really started reading my Bible seriously for the first time when I was 15 years of age. And I mean studying it every single day, spending hours in it, really beginning to dig deeply into the story of God and his people. And so two years later, around 17, I began kind of putting two and two together and figuring out to some degree what Jesus meant for me. And at 46 years of age, so almost 30 years later, I still feel as if Jesus is the absolute center and control of every aspect of my life. Now I said he is the control. I'm not saying that he's always completely in control of everything I do because I am not yet what I shall be. But I have found as I have aged into relationship with Jesus that he has literally changed everything about my life. My job is what it is because of Jesus. My marriage is what it is because of Jesus. We parent our kids the way we parent them because of Jesus. He is the nexus of the entirety of our life experience. Who is Jesus to you? I really believe that Jesus and who he is is the most important question of all. And so I hope this Christmas I can help you uh, meditate on that a little bit. And I hope that as the months turn to weeks, months turn to years that uh, you find Jesus changing everything about who you are and what you do. 
Today we um, see Jesus introduced as son of Abraham. We get this out of Matthew chapter 1. And as I want to do sometimes, I get to read you an entire genealogy here. So fasten your seatbelts. It's very exciting stuff. Matthew chapter 1, beginning at the first verse. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We can stop right there. I'm just preaching on him being the son of Abraham. But let's get some context. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Peretz and Zerah by Tamar, and Peretz the father of Chezron, and Chezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nachshon, Nachshon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, there's a name you recognize, by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Oved by Ruth, there's another name you recognize, and Oved the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Iyah, of Iyah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Yoram, Yoram the father of Uzziah, in the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah the father of Yotam, Yotam the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, in Hebrew, Chizkiyahu, very famous king. And Chizkiyahu, the father of Menasheh, Menasheh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Tzadok, Tzadok, the father of Achim. Are you bored yet? Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Elazar, and Elazar, the father of Matan. Matan was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. What we have here in Matthew chapter 1 is Matthew's legal genealogy of Jesus. It's legal in that he is trying to connect Jesus to King David and to Abraham so that he can build the case for Jesus' right to the kingdom of David. Most scholars think that Matthew was writing primarily to Jewish listeners, to Jewish readers, and so he was working very hard throughout his gospel, his history of the life and ministry of Jesus, to make Jesus seem as messianic, as kingly as possible to his original audience. So this is a legal genealogy. He's trying here to trace the descendants of Jesus from Abraham and King David so that he can prove that Jesus has the right to David's throne. So what does that mean for me? Well, it means five things. Five things from this ancient genealogy that I hope you can take with you today that might change your life. First thing is this, God made a promise to Abraham and it's the promise that matters. This promise shows up in Genesis chapter 12. It's referenced here in verse one of Matthew one, the book of, in the original language, the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Genesis 12, you might remember the story. In uh, verses one through four, all of a sudden God shows up in the life of a man named Abram. I love that he shows up completely unannounced 
and as far as we know, unasked for. Here's the account, Genesis 12:1. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him or her who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I love the fact that God shows up unannounced. No preamble, no introduction. He just shows up in Abram's life. He hasn't changed his name yet to Abraham. And the first thing this unannounced, uninvited, unasked for God gives to Abram is a command. Go to a land that I will show you. Pack up and leave. We know that Abraham was an established man, a wealthy man. Okay, he had built a life. He had a very large household. It would have been completely disconcerting for him to have God show up all of a sudden and say, leave this, everything you know, and go to a land that I will show you. Perhaps the most disconcerting thing is that there's no roadmap given. It's just go to the land that I will show you. This is the first command that God gives to Abram. And then he follows up this command with a promise. He says, I will make of you a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. If, you'd read, if you read a little further in the story of Abram, you will soon discover that he is childless. His wife is barren, and they are both at this point well advanced in years, somewhere in their 70s, we think, at this point. So this strange, unannounced God shows up, tells him to move from his house to a completely new place that God will show him, and then promises him, a man with no children, that he will make of him a great nation. God shows up again in Genesis chapter 15 and reaffirms this promise to Abraham. We read this account in Genesis 15, 1 through 6. Here it is. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now notice this. I love this. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Notice, he talks back to God. He says, really? I don't know, because so far it's not looking so good. If you ever felt like your life's not looking so good, you're not alone. He talks back to God. He says, behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. <clears throat> and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Here's the key part. And he, meaning Abram, believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. I want you to notice here, when God shows up in Genesis 15 to, reassure, to reaffirm his promise to Abraham, three things happen that are noteworthy. One, Abraham has doubts. So if you ever had doubts, you're not the only one. He's very aware of his weakness of the thing that's missing in his life. He's childless. Are you aware of the things that are missing in your life? If you are, you're not alone. Take some hope from the fact that the patriarch of Judaism, the forefather of the Jewish and really the Christian faith, was suffering from profound doubts. So if you ever find yourself in that situation, let me remind you, you are not alone. The second thing I want to note is that in answer to Abram's doubts, God asks him to do something impossible. He brings him outside and he says, look towards heaven and number the stars. Nobody can number the stars. If you ever feel like God asks you to do something ridiculous in answer to you confessing your doubts to him, you're not alone. Isn't that just hugely comforting? 
Wave at me if God ever asks you to do something ridiculous in your life. Seriously, wave at me. Is it just me? All right, a few of you, God's asked you to do something ridiculous in your life. You are not the only one. And then the third thing I want to tease out from Genesis 15 is that Abraham believed. He believed and God counted it to him as righteousness. There's a pattern here that we can copy as we learn to be God's people. Here's the pattern. God shows up. We obey. We know that between Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, Abram obeyed and actually left Haran to begin moving towards the land that God would show him. God shows up. We obey. We live with doubt. But God stays involved. And then we believe. You can reduce an Abrahamic lifestyle down to two words. A little easier to remember than the five points I just made. What are those two words? Belief and obedience. That is an Abrahamic lifestyle. That is a God-pleasing lifestyle. Belief and obedience. Why can we believe? Or more importantly, why should we believe? Haven't you noticed, Todd, how difficult life is? Believe me, I've noticed. So if you're dealing with doubt today, or if you know somebody who you will interact with over this Christmas who is dealing with doubt today, and when you talk about the concepts of belief and obedience, you see their eyes glaze over, and maybe they ask you, why should I believe? If you know them, they'll tell you about all the disappointments in their life. If you have a relationship with them, they will be honest about all the ways in which they feel like God has failed them. So you want to make sure when somebody levels with you that you do not ever give them a trite or a Christian-easy answer. Okay, you want to tell them the truth. When they say, why should I believe? You can simply say, because God promised. Please note, you don't have to defend the Lord. If he is God... He's more than God enough to defend himself. So you can let that tension hang in the relationship. You don't have to make answer for him. Okay? I acknowledge the fact that God may not exist. Okay? I find that a reasonable way to think and feel. If you're just a normal person out there in the world, you're like, ah, it seems pretty weird to me all this stuff you do about God. I, I haven't seen him. I haven't heard him. Okay? I acknowledge that that's a very legitimate way to feel. Okay? I have no issues with saying that from the pulpit as one of God's preachers. Why? Because if God is God, he doesn't need me to defend him. And if he is God, then he keeps his promises. He cannot be God otherwise. Okay, a God who breaks his promises is no God at all. So we really are playing a zero-sum game here. It really is either or, all or nothing. Either God exists and he is who he says he is, in which case everything's going to be okay, or we're all completely out to lunch and we've lost our minds. Okay, if God is God, he will keep his promise. It's the promise that matters. Not how you feel about it, not how you react to it, not what life does to you. How many of you have given up hope after you've received a promise, things got difficult, and you went, mm, guess the promise wasn't true? Anybody besides me? Right? Somebody say amen in this house. This is the way life is. Okay, you're not a bad person because you find yourself struggling with doubt. It's the promise that matters, not your response to it, not your reaction to it. So what? So dwell on the promises of God this Christmas. This is why we worship. So that as we sing these words, we memorize them and they sink down into our heart so that the next time we find ourselves in trouble, oh, Christ be magnified, comes up out of our heart unbidden. 
That's why we listen to preaching about Jesus from the Bible, so that the word of the Lord finds a home in our hearts, so that we find ourselves in trouble. We can hear in the recesses of our memory, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. So dwell on the promises of God this Christmas, no matter how sketchy life gets. That's the second, the second thing you can draw out of this story today. Life is um, pretty sketchy. It's a pretty sketchy road to the kingdom. Therefore, you are an unlikely hero. I'm working here out of verses two through six. For the sake of time, I won't read it again. I just want to point out here that the people in verses two through six are, uh, let's be charitable about it, a mixed bag. Okay, Isaac, son of Abraham, pretty good dude. Except for that one time when he pretended um, that his wife Rebecca wasn't really his wife, said she was his sister because he was afraid that the people he was dwelling amongst would kill him because she was so good looking. So Isaac's a coward, as outlined in Genesis 26. Jacob, son of Isaac, this guy's a real problem child. Known as Jacob the usurper. Remember the story? He steals his brother's birthright. If you haven't visited that story in Genesis 27 in a while, visit it and see how despicable Jacob the patriarch was. And yet, in the very next chapter, Genesis 28, after he's been sent away from his father's house, what does he see? The stairway to heaven. So here you have God showing up visibly in this guy's life who's just stolen his brother's birthright. It's a mixed bag. Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, is heading north to check on his wool harvest in Genesis chapter 38. He stumbles into a prostitute he meets along the way and thinks, you know what? This is a pretty good idea. He goes into her. She conceives by him, which is like a whole story in and of itself, except wait for it. This woman is not just a prostitute. She is Tamar, his daughter-in-law, who is entrapping him into this sexual liaison because he has refused to give his third son, Shelah, to her after his first son died and he was married to Tamar. He said, well, just wait until Shelah grows up and then I'll marry you off to him. Either he forgot about it or he deliberately left it out. And so this poor woman, Tamar, has to take matters into her own hands, pretend she's a prostitute, get her father-in-law to sleep with her so she'll get impregnated. Later in that story, when she's caught out as pregnant, they pull her in front of him and he says, whoa, let her be burned. But in that intimate encounter, she stole a couple of items of clothing from him and she pulls them out in that moment and says, thou art the father. And all of a sudden, Judah gets religion. Sketchy characters. Peretz, Chezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nachshon, Salmon. Completely obscure characters. Who are these people? They're entirely forgettable until Salmon fathers Boaz by who? Rahab. And if you're like, Rahab, I've heard that name before. Yes, you have heard that name before. Rahab is Jericho's prostitute introduced to us in Joshua 6. So now Salmon enters the stage because he's married a prostitute and she is the mother of Boaz, who is the father of Oved by Ruth. Remember Ruth, the Moabitess foreigner, the dispossessed woman with no place in Jewish society? The cast of characters continues, just gets better and better and better. Obed fathers Jesse, Jesse fathers David, and David's adulterous affair with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of his soldiers who he gets killed on purpose so that he can cover his tracks because Bathsheba's come back after the first time they had sex and is like, I'm pregnant, sorry. 
So he gets her husband killed so that he can marry her. And from that union comes Solomon, the greatest king in Jewish history, who was counted the wisest man alive, who built the first temple. And because of his appetite for foreign women, was led away from the God of his fathers. And basically, if you read the story plainly, died an apostate. (laughs) It's a pretty sketchy road to the kingdom. These are pretty unlikely heroes. Big take home point. So are we. Somebody say, oh, thank God. (laughs) So if we're all a bunch of unlikely heroes, can I invite you this Christmas to cut yourself and the people around you a little slack? Can I get a witness? Okay, cut these people some slack. Because if we're honest, all of us will admit, point number three, that life is ups and downs and in-between times. What do we do with life's ups and downs and in-between times? You know what we do as Jesus people? (laughs) Receive it. We keep going and we manage our expectations. I get this out of verses 7 through 11. This is where we play good king, bad king. Again, I won't read the whole thing. Let me just hit the names for you here. You ready for good king, bad king? Super fun. David, good. Solomon, good-ish. Rehoboam, bad. Aviah, bad. Asaph, good. Jehoshaphat, good. Yoram, bad. Uzziah, good. Yotam, good. Ahaz, very bad. Hezekiah, very good. Menashe, the worst. Menashe was so bad, he became like the archetypal bad Jewish king. Amos, bad. Josiah, good. Jeconia, bad. Jeconia's brothers, pathetic. Why pathetic? Because it was in their day that the deportation to Babylon happened. The Babylonians came in, destroyed Jerusalem, wrecked the temple, and uh, sent everyone into exile. So here's the point. Why good, bad? Why is this beautiful? Receive it, church. Because between good and bad are the in-between times. And why do I like in-between times? Receive it. Because lives with in-between times sound exactly like my life. And I'm willing to bet <laughs> that it sounds exactly like your life. <laughs> so please, stop trying to live a perfect life. I, I don't see any perfect lives outlined in Scripture, except for one, and we'll get to him in just a moment. Life is good and bad. It is up and down. So keep going while managing your expectations. Most Christian disappointment comes from people not really understanding the story and thinking that coming to Jesus equals having a perfect life lived on a bed of roses. The second trouble shows up, they find themselves completely disillusioned because they don't really know the story. If you really know the story, you know that it's up and down. It's good and bad. So you keep going while managing your expectations. Why? Point four, because we're not kings anymore. This, I think, the saddest, most profound, and beautiful part of the whole story. In verses 12 through 16, we meet 13 completely obscure characters. After the deportation to Babylon, verse 12, we meet Jeconia, Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, Abiud, Eliakim, Azor, Tzadok, Achim, Eliud, Elazar, Matan, Yaakov, and then Yosef, the husband of Mary, father of Jesus. Okay, receive it. 13 generations of nobodies, former kings who should have sat on the throne in Jerusalem 
but instead who return home to a conquered land to live under foreign rule while slowly sinking into more and more obscurity until we end up with Joseph, a stonecutter who lives in Nazareth in the north of Israel, which is a crappy place to live in the wintertime, in a village of 150 people. How the mighty have fallen. You know who this sounds like? It sounds exactly like us. Well, what do you mean, Todd? <laughs> From Adam and Eve to Rhonda and Steve. <laughs> we were made to be friends of God. Were we not? Is that what the story says? We were made to be friends of God, ruling and reigning with him in a world that he made for his glory and our joy. And instead, we spend our days as stunted rebels, all but crushed by the weight of sin and death. Could I get a witness? Have you experienced this at some point in your life? This is why so many people, perhaps including you, are so miserable. Because we know deep in our bones that we were meant to be kings and queens, but instead we have been reduced to slaves. This is why no matter how much we get, we never find satisfaction. This is why no matter how far we progress, we always feel like we're never getting anywhere. Because we have fallen a mighty long way. Why do I tell you this? Why is this encouraging? Because hopefully this will help you finally accept the fact that you are not the answer. Right? You're not the answer you're looking for. Jesus, final point, and Josh and team, you can join me on stage because I'm done. You're not the answer you're looking for. Jesus is the answer you're looking for. I'll say it again. Jesus is the answer that you are looking for and you can trust God's divine design. This is what Matthew's pointing out here with the whole 14 generations thing as we close. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. 14, 14, 14. Why the emphasis on 14 here? Because Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and religious Jews love numerology. Every letter in the Hebrew alphabet has a number assigned to it. The letter Daled for D, for David, has the number four assigned to it. The letter Vav, which for us would be a V, occurs two letters later in the Hebrew alphabet, so it has the number six assigned to it. Then there is no vowel in Hebrew, so in Hebrew, David is Daled, Vav, Daled, or for us, D, V, D, or four plus six plus four equals 14. When he's saying 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations, he's saying David, 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 David. And he wanted to make this point so badly that he skipped three generations between Uzziah and Jotam. So if you go back and read Chronicles, you're like, wait a minute, did Matthew make a mistake? No, he didn't make a mistake. He left three generations out on purpose so that to his readers, who aren't going back to bother reading Chronicles can get the significance of 14, 14, 14, David, David, David. What's Matthew's point here? Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior that we've been looking for. My dear friends, he's the Savior you've been looking for. Even if, like me, you followed him for most of your life, he is still, receive it, the Savior that you are looking for. 
If you find yourself in a time of trial, if you find yourself in a season of wandering, come back to Jesus this Christmas because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to bless the world. Which means, if you belong to him, all things considered, everything's gonna be okay. Which means, no matter how hard this year is, um, you should be able to have a Merry Christmas because Jesus is son of Abraham. And somebody said, amen. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness. We're gonna close today with communion. Hopefully you have your little receptacle. Isn't this weird? Let's just hold it up and celebrate the weirdness of this. Okay, it's so weird. I know we're Guelph and it's so not environmentally responsible to have stuff we have to throw away. I'm sorry about that. We'll stop as soon as we can. But there's bread inside and juice. So we got these for you so we could have communion in a pandemic. Somebody shout in this house. Thank you, Lord. Now look, if you're at home, lucky you, you don't get to use these silly little things. So get yourself a loaf of bread, get yourself some wine, and get ready to uh, lead yourself. If you have kids with you, lead them into communion this morning. So church, you can uh, open this up. If you peel back the first layer, you'll find the little piece of bread. I'm having the hardest time doing it. Is it as hard for you as it is for me? Plus, I'm like Pastor Todd, so if I spill, it's going to look silly. There we go. It's pretty cool. The Bible tells us that um, we ought to count it all joy when we enter into various trials. So uh, let's be Christian here today. Ah, these wafers are like the ones from my Pentecostal church growing up. I hate them. I like bread better. Hey, let's celebrate this. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for the ability to take communion even in a pandemic. So grab your bread first. As we remember that on the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed together with his friends, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. So break it, snap it in half, saying, this is my body which is broken for you. Oh, this is still good even though it's weird. Take this and eat it and remember me. So let's partake of the bread together. Aha, I got my joy nonetheless. Thank you, Lord, for your body broken for us. Thank you, Lord, that as you hung upon Calvary's tree, you in your body paid the penalty for our sins. So, Lord, this morning as we partake of communion together, we remember your body broken. And we remember, Lord, that sin and death have been broken. And that their power in our lives has been broken. And that we no longer have to live as slaves. Somebody say hallelujah in this house. I didn't hear you. Somebody say hallelujah in this house. Hallelujah. The power of sin is broken. In the same way after supper, he took the cup. Hold up your cup, friends. You got it. It's fun. You get to be like a preacher in this house. They would hold the cup up over the congregation so everybody would see it. He gave thanks for it, saying, And blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who births the fruit of the vine. After you had given thanks for it, he drank it. Let's drink that wine saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many. Take this and drink it and remember me. So let's stand to our feet. Lord, we remember you in this house today. We remember your sacrifice upon Calvary's tree. And we remember your resurrection, Lord. We remember that the tomb is empty. 
that when they came to anoint your body that very first Easter Sunday morning, they found the tomb empty and the stone rolled away. And so we ask that your resurrection power would find its way into our lives and that we would live this Christmas season with the joy that our friends, the first disciples, would have lived in those weeks following your resurrection from the dead. So friends, we're going to sing this one song as we close. Just leave your uh, elements on the chair if you want. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. I hope you're leaving feeling encouraged. If you'd like to come see us sometime in Guelph, you can find directions on our website, gracecommunity.ca.